This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include mature themes, strong language, and allusions to violence and killing. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 266. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamore City. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you the latest on my efforts as a writing professional. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 7 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, we got to catch up with some of Daniel's friends from Westfall Academy. At first, things looked pretty good for them. After serving their five-year tour with the PSYOPs Division of the Military Intelligence Directorate, Brian, Fiona, and Sasha have been discharged from military service. The Psy Collective has rewarded them with an apartment and the blessing to form a breeding cell, the central unit of collective life. Daniel's former girlfriend, Rebecca, has also been assigned to the cell, and she seems to be settling in nicely. But this happy Polly family is about to learn that what the hive can give, the hive can take away. The summer cell is visited by a hive elder, who tells them that they are needed for another dangerous mission. The vampire crime syndicate is smuggling a package into Metamore from one of their biotech labs overseas, a facility suspected of manufacturing nanotech viruses. These technomagical parasites are able to do all sorts of amazing things, depending on their programming. Since the syndicate had to resort to smuggling, instead of paying off the customs agents, the Hive assumes that the package contains some sort of weapons system, something that could tip the balance in the vampire's long-running cold war with the Collective. The Hive wants Brian and his old MID team to intercept the package. What none of them realize is who is working the other side of this mission. Victor Hincavos has been the Hive's liaison with MID for the last 15 years. He trained Brian, Fiona, and Sasha in the covert ops work that makes them so valuable. Even worse, Victor is bringing along their friend Daniel to help watch his back. Victor and Daniel have both gotten screwed over by the Hive's manipulations, and now they are making a play for their independence. They are joined in their efforts by Callie Linder, a teenage runner with a knack for infiltration, the androgyne Evan and Ava Salindi, a smooth-talking fixer and social engineer, and a squad of hard-bitten mercenaries for added muscle. Daniel, for his part, has no idea that the package belongs to the vampires, or that his friends are being tasked to steal it. Now, as Ava gets them past security and into the skyport, 
Brian, Fiona, and Sasha are meeting up with the last two members of their own team. Making the Cut A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 7 Any sign of them yet? Fiona scanned the crowd in the Skyport subway terminal, her cool green eyes taking in everything. Negative on visual she said. Sasha touched Brian's hand lightly. They're here, she said softly. I just made contact with Dell. He and Trace found each other in one of the shops. They'll meet us by the security checkpoint. Brian nodded, then reached up and readjusted his glasses on the bridge of his nose. His duffel bag slid off his shoulder as he did so, and he hiked it back up with an irritated grunt. There wasn't much in there that he really needed for the mission, but a group of passengers without any luggage would have looked suspicious. Granted, the disguise charms, fake ID cards, and non-detection scroll inside the bag would cause them trouble enough if anyone searched it, but at least this way Brian only had to get one bag through the checkpoint unnoticed. It would have been worse if they'd had the equipment spread between all of them. There they are, Fiona said. Brian looked up to see Dal and Trace loitering near the entrance to the queue for the security checkpoint, looking dapper and respectable in their tailored suits. Brian was dressed like a tourist heading out for a summer vacation, and he felt almost shabby by comparison, in his shorts, t-shirt, and sandals. The wolfman and the Arambian didn't make eye contact with them as they joined the line for the checkpoint but Brian felt their happiness and excitement as Sasha patched them into a shared link. Brian, Dell called, his telepathic voice carrying the psychic equivalent of a joyful hug. Long time no see, man. You're telling me, Brian said, grinning. How are you and Josephine doing? Fantastic, thanks for asking. We have a daughter now, Elizabeth Yanlin. No way, how old is she? Four months, Dell said, his pride obvious. You should see her, B. Gorgeous white and silver coat, just like her mom. She's going to be a heartbreaker when she grows up. Four months? Damn, it's been too long. I'll second that, Trace said. I hear you and the girls have got one of your own on the way. Yep, Sasha said. Becca's got 18 weeks to go. Sometime in the next month we have to decide whether the next one's going to be Fiona's or mine. Fiona unconsciously reached up and fingered her birth control amulet. I think we all know which way that's going to go, Trace said, amused. Fiona cleared her throat and stood up a bit straighter, bringing her hand abruptly back down to her side. So, what about you, Trace? she asked coolly, the line of her thoughts so clear and direct as to override any further conversation on the subject. I imagine they must have assigned you to stud service. How many other men's wives have you impregnated in the last year? Fiona, Sasha whispered, her eyes wide. But Trace was just shaking his head and chuckling, a basso rumble of amusement. You've got me all wrong, Fee. I've settled down. 
got a nice little cell going with four smart, beautiful ladies up in Soulshore. Our second son's due in a month or so. I couldn't be happier. Fiona blinked, a ripple of complex emotions running through the link. Well, she said, you can consider me suitably surprised, Trace Umbara. She paused. And impressed, she added, her tone softening. I never took you for a family man. Eh, hey, that's all right, go, he said easily. It took me by surprise, too, but I wouldn't trade it. They continued their silent chat as the security line moved forward at glacial speed, catching up on a year's worth of gossip. As they drew close to the end of the line, Brian shifted past the others to the front of the group, bringing the big duffel bag along with him. While he wrestled it onto the conveyor belt that would take it through the x-ray machine and spell detectors, he reached out with his electrokinesis. He found a power line near his foot and nudged an exposed toe against the side of the machine, riding the current through the line and into the spell detector. The layout of the circuits was clean and well-designed, and he quickly found the logic pathways that led to the alarm system. With a tiny effort of will, he shut down that circuit, as well as the one that was designed to notify the user if the detector went offline. No matter what the sensors detected, the machine wouldn't tell its operators about it. The entire process had taken only a few seconds. The guard took his ID card and scanned it. The light turned green, and he looked at the display. His eyes went up, and he turned to Brian, looking impressed. Here you are, Captain, he said respectfully, giving a little bow as he handed the card back to Brian. Enjoy your vacation, sir. Brian nodded his thanks and walked through the arches to the other side. The other members of their group likewise passed through without incident. All of them were military veterans with honorable discharges, and that meant that no one would give them any hassle unless there was a damned good reason to do so. Brian waited for Fiona and Sasha, then continued down the hallway. Trace and Dell followed a few paces behind them. When they were out of sight of the security checkpoint, Brian stopped at a public access information terminal, where he quickly rode the circuits back to the security checkpoint and turned the magic sensors back on. The last thing they needed was to inadvertently help some fairy terrorist set off a curse in the middle of the skyport. Before pulling out of the system, Brian checked the skyport maps and found the loading bay where the Syndicate's skyship was scheduled to deliver its cargo for inspection. He turned back to the others, who were looking at him expectantly. He wondered again how he had been the one who ended up as the leader of this group during their years with MID. He'd never particularly thought of himself as leadership material, but he had sort of fallen into the role, and now was apparently stuck with it. Cargo's coming to Bay 94, he said. That whole area is restricted, so we'll have to get past a guard station on the 87th floor. They all sent back waves of ascent through the link, and together they rode an express lift up to the correct floor. It was one of the highest floors that was open to the public, and the area was full of restless travelers near their respective gates. Shuttles or crane-like boarding arms would connect to those gates to ferry the passengers to their intended vessels, but it didn't look like any of this morning's flights were ready for departure yet. Brian led his team past the gates and over to a pair of restrooms that stood beside a door reading, Authorized Personnel Only. 
The security door was warded by an electronic keypad with an integrated ID card reader. You're up, Sasha, Brian murmured. The slight woman nodded and went inside the women's restroom, which was closer to the security door. About a minute later, a Skyport employee came up to the door and swiped his ID card in the reader, then punched in a code on the keypad. The door beeped and the employee went inside. Sasha came out of the bathroom a few seconds later, looking pleased. Got it, she said through the link. Today's passcode is 95064SC. There are four armed guards in the security station on the far side of the door. Brian turned to Fiona, who nodded. Not a problem. Just persuade the door to accept my identification. I will take care of the rest. Will do. Sasha, Del, Trace, keep a lookout. Brian pulled two disguise amulets out of the duffel bag. Each was clipped to a fake ID, with a photograph and embedded personal data that matched the persona crafted in the amulet. He handed Fiona's to her and placed his own in his pocket. They went into their respective restrooms, and Brian went inside a stall before he slipped the amulet over his head. He felt a tingling sensation as the magic took hold, watching as his body changed into that of a pale-skinned Seth Morin man in his early fifties. His clothes changed, too, to mimic the uniforms worn by the Skyport security personnel. It was only a glamour, pure illusion. Underneath the weave of light and mana fields, he still felt like himself. Normally he would have worried about mages seeing through the glamour, but the Elder assured him that the magic was subtle and tightly woven. Under mage sight, it would look like a minor cosmetic charm, unless a wizard got suspicious enough to do a deep examination of the spell. Fortunately, most travelers in the middle of a long trip would be too tired, cranky, or excited to notice anything that didn't directly affect them. Brian waited until anyone who had seen him enter the restroom had already left or gone into one of the stalls. He came back out and saw a uniformed woman waiting for him near the entrance to the ladies' room. Fiona looked like a twenty-something Yamatoan woman, with straight black hair, olive skin, a round face, and a gymnast's build. She had a distinct scar across her left eyebrow, the thin white line of an old knife wound or claw mark. It was a nice touch. People who tried to remember her later would fixate on that distinctive feature. The more solid the picture of you that a witness had in his mind, the less likely it was that he would even consider that you might be wearing a glamour. Fiona smirked, her eastern eyes narrowing almost to slits with the wry expression. You look like you could be my father, she said softly, as they walked over to the security door. He chuckled. Obviously you haven't looked in a mirror lately, he said, placing a hand on the security pad. Fiona reached over and swiped her fake ID, while Brian sent a finger of thought down into the circuitry. A moment of persuasion convinced the computer that the card was valid, and it flashed the message, Enter Passcode. Brian punched in the code that Sasha had pulled out of the employee's mind. The door beeped obediently and unlocked, and Fiona slipped inside. Brian moved as if to go in after her, then paused and went over to a nearby garbage can. He pulled a couple of used tissues out of his pocket and discarded them. Another bit of pantomime, in case anyone watching wondered why he didn't go through the door. He smoothed the sides of his pants to banish a few imaginary wrinkles. 
That ought to be enough time, he thought. He went back to the door, scanned his card, punched in the passcode, and went through. On the other side was a narrow corridor, which ran straight for about seven meters before disappearing around a corner. To his left was the wall shared with the women's bathroom. To the right was a security station, with large bulletproof windows along its entire length, and only a single door in or out. The four guards inside were lying on the floor, all unconscious. None had even had time to draw their weapons, and Fiona had bound their hands behind them with their own handcuffs. Now she stood in the midst of her handiwork, her hands on her hips. She had a light sheen of sweat on her forehead, but she wasn't breathing hard. What kept you? she asked. Brian snorted. Show off. He pulled one of the rolling chairs up to a terminal and sat down, looking up at the array of monitors and closed-circuit vid screens that surrounded him. There was an open data port for a spelljack mounted next to the keyboard, but Brian didn't need technomagical hardware to interface with a computer network. Sticking his finger into the data port, he sent his will out into the system's active memory. The software was there waiting for him. His work with MID had taken Brian into some of the most secure computer networks in the world. Any network of more than a few machines was equipped with some kind of security system to prevent intrusion. The ones that Brian had faced were often capable of sending defensive magic back into the invader's spelljack, shutting down his connection, or painting him with a magical signature that would allow him to be found and arrested. Some of the nastier systems actually carried lethal countermeasures, though these were generally frowned upon by civilized nations. Officially, anyway. Unofficially, intelligence agencies spared no expense, and no mercy, in dealing with those who might steal their secrets. Since joining the Westfall Kreish full-time at age 10, Brian had never met a defensive system that could stop him for long. Any security system smart enough to react to an intrusion had to live in the software, and Brian's power extended to the physical circuits and storage media on which the software depended. He could see everything a program was doing simultaneously, both in the virtual world of the software and in the physical world of the hardware. If he decided that a program would not access a given circuit or store a key piece of data, it simply did not happen. He'd been doing it for so long that he didn't even have to think about the mechanics of it anymore. It was as natural and instinctive as breathing. The Skyport security system was good, by civilian standards, but it didn't hold the candle to the programs Brian had done battle with on his PSYOP missions. In less than a minute, he had administrator-level control over all of the network systems. Okay, it's clear, he told Sasha through the link. Get changed and come on in. Sasha and the others joined them a minute later, all of them wearing their disguise amulets and looking like Skyport employees. Dell's fur was a glossy black with a white patch at his throat, while Trace's skin had gone from dark brown to a pale green color. He did not look happy. All right, he said, crossing his arms. Who's the son of a bitch who decided to make me a goddamned ogre? Sasha covered her mouth and tried to suppress a laugh. Fiona just quirked an eyebrow at him. You are overreacting, Trace, she said evenly, and that is a breed, not an ogre. 
Trace scowled. His new form gave him a good face for scowling. Whatever. He turned to Dell, gesturing toward Fiona. Look at her. Bugnosed, pasty-faced white chick gets turned into Miss Yamato, and they make me a lutin with a growth disorder. Fiona clenched her fists and took a step toward Trace, her muscles rippling. Stow it, both of you, Brian snapped. Fiona turned to him. Her eyes were as hard as iron, but her body abruptly shifted from a combat stance to a neutral posture. My apologies, Captain, she said, her voice eerily calm. As the cell husband, of course it is your responsibility to take the lead in defending the honor of your wives. He wasn't questioning your honor, he was ragging on you, Brian said, irritated. You've been doing it to each other for ten years. Gods, what's gotten into you, Fee? Fiona looked away, blushing slightly. Rebecca and the baby are home alone, she said quietly. This mission is likely to be dangerous. I am worried for them. She looked up at Trace. It expressed itself as inappropriate anger. I apologize. No problem, Fee, Trace said, his expression sober. Believe me, I know how it is. Me too, Dell murmured. His eyes had gone distant, and images of his wife and daughter reverberated through their shared link. An uncomfortable silence hung in the air for a few heartbeats. At last, Brian cleared his throat. Well, let's finish this job so we can get back to them, he said. He stood and folded his hands over his slight paunch of a stomach. There's a network of ventilation ducts that runs through the entire skyport, and they're big enough to fit a small person. Our best chance of getting the package out of here is for Fiona to use the ducts to carry it past the security checkpoints. Once you get to an entry level, you can just pop out of a storage room or something and carry it right out the front door. He shrugged. It's not like anybody's going to be looking for you. Fiona nodded. Sasha should stay with you. She can watch the maps of the skyport and tell me where I need to go. Agreed, Brian said. Dell, Trace, get the duct tape from the bag and truss up these guards. Then I want you to take their guns and get up to Bay 94. There's a cargo tender waiting to unload the skyship. Be on it. No sweat, Dell said, already in the process of tying up the guards. It was an obvious setup line for a joke about wolves and their lack of sweat glands, but not even Sasha was in the mood to take it. She had pulled out the silver yew-tree crucifix that she wore around her neck and was holding it lightly between her fingers. She rubbed her thumb back and forth over the surface of the talisman, a sure sign of stress. Sasha still maintained a deep and personal faith in Eli, but she wasn't much of an ecclesiast anymore. She had left the church at the age of thirteen, largely because its teachings about sex ran contrary to the Psy Collective's polyamorous social structure. Still, the trappings of faith were important to her, and she clung to the crucifix as a good luck charm. Old habits died hard, Brian supposed. All right, he said quietly. The tender's our best shot for getting that thing out of here. Do what you can to get it before the tender comes back here, but don't take any stupid risks. The Elder gave us a whole lot of maybes on this mission, and as far as I'm concerned, that means it's not worth dying for. If we can't get it on the tender, we'll pull back and play it by ear. Any questions? 
There was a moment's silence. What about the Elder's instructions to shoot to kill? Dell asked. Brian grimaced. Only if you have to. I trust your judgment on that. After five years of doing the Empire's dirty work, I think our hands have enough blood on them. Sasha and Dell nodded soberly at that. They all looked around at each other, but no one voiced any other questions. Let's do it, Brian said. And that's the end of Chapter 7. Come back next time, when Daniel and Victor retrieve the package, and Brian's team begins their plan to steal it. Tom Robbins said, Rules such as write what you know and show don't tell, while doubtlessly grounded in good sense, can be ignored with impunity by any novelist nimble enough to get away with it. There is, in fact, only one rule in writing fiction. Whatever works, works. So, let's see what's been working for me this week. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of December 5th through December 11th. I wrote 4,991 words this week, over the course of 6.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 799 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 238 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued pushing forward on Act 3 of Honor Bound. Progress was slow but steady, logging six to 700 words each day for most of the week. Honor and Natasha are both in peril right now, but Honor's situation is more subtle, and she hasn't yet realized the danger she's in. Since those scenes are being written entirely from Honor's perspective, I have to use subtle hints in the narration to help the reader understand what's going on, even though Honor herself doesn't. We'll find out how well I did when I share these chapters with the early access donors on Patreon. The story is now in chapter 35, and the manuscript is just under 97,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>